The kiln had just hardly cooled. I guess it was more like an oven. A brass bull-shaped altar. From a distance, it looked lifelike. But the bull was stationary, locked in a permanent standstill. The reddened glow of its hide now returned to its previous mustard-colored sheen, glowing gold again instead of scarlet. Sharp to the touch, brass horns jutted out from its head like two swords stabbing the air. Metallic muscles rolled down like rivers to meet gleaming hooves still hot to the touch. The cords of wood stacked beneath this massive metal bull had all but turned to ash, reduced to nothing. Particles of combustion swept away in the breeze blowing in from the Aegean. The smoke billowing from the bull's nose had vanished with one last wisp, gone. Gone like the voice of dear Antipas, the dear friend, the dear physician, the dear brother. Elisa's screams were silent now. In his body, it lay limp and lifeless, but finally at rest, inside the body of the beast. The faithful band of Christian believers who had shown up to witness the execution of Antipas, or as they call it, his home going. They now sloshed their way home, the ground left alone to sop up their tears. With each footstep home, they they encountered some of the finest expressions of sculpture and art their world had to offer. Down from the Acropolis, their eyes, though swollen and red and puffy, beheld one of the greatest libraries of their ancient world, stuffed with over 200,000 scrolls all along their somber path. All along their somber path, the white limestone temple upon temple upon temple. All along their somber path, flowing Roman aqueducts. White stone-cut pillars of palaces and baths. A 10,000-seat amphitheater carved into the mountainside. And temples to the likes of Athena, Augustus, Asclepius, Hera, Dionysus, Demeter, Telesphoros, Serapis, Zeus, to name a few. The temples, they towered above, imposing their influence and spewing their seduction down into the valley below where the faithful band of Christian believers now sloshed their way home. 
The aroma rising from the altars was tantalizing, as if the scent had been given a voice calling the Christians near. Jubilant sounds of song and dance and laughter, it rung out a tune that darkened the depths of the Christians' own despair. And the sights of scantily clad men and women shamelessly abandoning themselves to lustful appetites, it was to some alluring and entrancing. Sure seem better than sadness. Sure seem better than persecution under the SPQR, Roman imperial power. Sure seem better than being despised and rejected, men and women of sorrow. Sure seem better than literally dying to self and for, for what gain? It sure seem better. Welcome to Pergamum, one of the seven cities that John of Patmos was instructed to write, Dear Church. Today we continue our Dear Church sermon series in which we're exploring seven different cities that held seven different churches to which seven different letters were written to in Revelation chapter 2. And three, and as we do so, we're having a heart-to-heart with our own lives and our own values as Journey the Church. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we read aloud from our memory verse. We do this to revere the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18a. And let's read this together as a church who believes that this is who Jesus is. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. And today, as a church, let's learn. Let's learn how to change our hearts and lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the ability to open up your word, to be here in this place, to come before you, to experience your change. We thank you for your goodness, God. And I ask you speak directly to someone here today. I pray you would speak to not just one person, but all of us today. Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you For you are our rock and our redeemer. And we love you, God. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go ahead, grab a seat. A postcard from Pergamum. Greetings from Pergamum, where the Western Turkish climate is perfect. The 100,000 plus population is perfect. Pleasant, and the religious atmosphere is positively polytheistic, as many gods as you desire. Come visit the second largest library in the world and count all 200,000 scrolls for yourself. Enjoy all the amenities Pergamum has to offer. Baths, palaces, gymnasiums, markets, temples, theaters, and 
more. As a major political and cultural and religious center of the world, what better place to plant a church than Pergamon? Its name literally means citadel, which is basically a fortress typically high up on a hill offering protection and power. So what better place to be the light of the world, not just a city on a hill, but a citadel, a thousand feet above the valley floor in the heart of a major political and cultural and religious center of the world. And yet, the challenge of following Jesus with all your heart in the heart of such an environment is noteworthy. So let's take a look at the note or the letter written to this church at Pergamum. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 2.12, or if you have it on the bulletin, or you can follow along on the screen, or you can follow along on the app as well. Revelation 2.12. Write this to the angel, you could also translate that as messenger, of the church in Pergamum. These are the words of the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. You find out that's Jesus. And this sword, it's the same two-edged sword that was used by the Romans to shed blood. But here we have it coming from Jesus' mouth. That means that his word is weapon enough. So let's hear what his word has to say. Verse 13a. I know that you are living right where Satan's throne is. Wait, what? Like, what does that mean? I didn't see that on the postcard to Pergamum. Perhaps the postcards and travel brochures of first century Pergamum need an honest update. An honest postcard from Pergamum. Greetings from Pergamum, where deceit is the norm. Hypocrisy runs rampant, and idolatry is the only way. Come visit Satan's throne, one of the finest establishments of debauchery Pergamum has to offer. Engage in a little fornication while you're here. Worship the emperor and as many gods and goddesses as you can. And don't forget to pack your camera. Rome just granted the city the rare power of capital punishment. I know that you are living right where Satan's throne is. That means there's satanic presence in Pergamum. But what does that actually look like? Well, Revelation often connects the Roman Empire with Satan. And this image of a throne is Roman opposition and Roman persecution of early Christianity. So Jesus is essentially saying, I get it, guys. It's hellish what you are enduring. Verse 13 in its entirety says, I know that you are living right where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name and you didn't break faith. You didn't break faith with me even at the time that Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan lives. 
the Pergamum Christians were faithfully unwavering, even though they lived in one of Satan's strongholds, and even though one of their own, their dear friend, a physician and a dentist named Antipas, was killed in the city. Tradition tells of two different culprits when it comes to the death of Antipas. One being the Roman authorities, and the second being the worshipers of the Greco-Egyptian, that means Greek slash Egyptian god, Serapis. One of these culprits carried out his death, and for good reason too, at least in their opinion. Because after all, you just can't have someone blatantly disobeying the emperor. You know, going around spreading this propaganda, this nonsense that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Yeah, 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 we can't have that. And then in his medical practice as a dentist, you know, people would come to him with a toothache and he would, he would heal them by natural means. And that was all fine and well. But then when he would put his hands on them and pray for them in Jesus' name, and then they'd be healed... And then he wouldn't charge them, just accept a free will, gift offering, a donation, whatever they might, you know, decide to give in their own hearts. Yeah, we can't have that. That's a threat to all the other businesses and healers in Pergamum. So whether the culprits were the Romans or the worshipers of the Greco-Egyptian god Serapis, one thing's for certain. It was death by Crockpot. They locked up Antipas in a huge brass bowl, a bowl that was affixed with pipes and whistles, and it was hollow on the inside. When the, the fire was kindled beneath this massive metal bowl and the flames were fanned to roaring, the heat inside the metal bowl would elevate these pipes and whistles affixed to this bull, they would convert his screams into the grunts and growls of a bull. And in time, Antipas would be roasted to death. Or in culinary terms, confit, cooked in his own fat. I mean, how do you, as witnesses to this, not break faith with Jesus? How do you not break faith with Jesus after experiencing such emotional and psychological trauma as this? Maybe you know the saying that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, that's the Pergamum Christians. They were made of some tough stuff. It's like they've got ice water running through their veins. Like they've got resiliency written into their DNA codes. It's like they've got a durability that picks them up and dusts them off and digs them in again. I knew a, a man like that. Bob Taylor. The big name tag guy. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. And he kept the faith. He had his home going on Monday at 2.45 p.m. But Bob was made of tough stuff. 
He faced lung cancer and the shadow of death. Like someone who's got ice water running through their veins. Like, like someone who's got resiliency written into his DNA code. Like someone who's got a durability that picks him up and dusts him off, digs him in. Again, he taught us how to die. He taught me how to live. We had just come home from yet another long day at the NICU. Our baby boy was still there, still struggling, still still attached to wires and tubes here and there, sticking to him like the tentacles of a jellyfish. And there we pulled up into the driveway, and I just remember feeling so spent so exhausted, and I looked up, and I saw a sign hanging on the metal screen door, a sign that that hadn't been there before, and there it hung, three words stacked on top of each other, love each moment, love each moment, and I remember getting out of the car and walking up and holding the sign in my hands, flipping it over, wondering, who in the world defaced my property with this Much-needed inspiration. Flip it over. Business card. Bob Taylor, real estate agent. (laughs) The sign hung on our metal screen door for some time, clapping in the wind, applauding our comings and goings. And then one day, we brought Zeke home from the hospital, and there was a sign, love. Each moment. You know, I, I think about that and how that sustained me and all the ways that Bob showed me how to, how to apply and understand those three words. Love each moment. Love each moment for what it is and who it's with and while you have them. Love each moment. And I think that's what enables someone like you and someone like me to be people who've got ice water running through our veins. People who've got resiliency written into our DNA codes. People who've got a durability that picks us up and dusts us off and digs us in again. That's what the Christians at Pergamum had. Great faith and persistence in the face of great trial. But Jesus also has some other words for them. Verse 14 continues, But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who follow Balaam's teaching. Balaam had taught Balak to trip up the Israelites so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, and like the handbook, like a manual, a first edition from the author, Balaam gives Balak the two easy steps to seducing the Israelites into sin and destruction. It's foolproof. It gets them every time. Idolatry and illicit sex. That means sex outside the context of marriage with whoever, whatever, however, whenever. It worked in the book of Numbers, idolatry, and illicit sex. Verse 15 says, In the same way, that is in the same way that Balaam taught Balak how to trip up the Israelites, you have some who follow the Nicolaitans' teaching. 
Worked in the book of Numbers. Worked in Revelation at Pergamum 2. Idolatry and illicit sex. Oh, man. You got to check out this. This feast to Athena, bro, it is off the hook, man. The boozy, bingy, baby-making merriment, unreal. Blows your Christian fun food fellowship out of the water, bro. Worked in Numbers. Worked in Revelation at Pergamum 2. Apparently, a group of Christians called the Nicolaitans were teaching that Christians could, in fact... As a Christian, you could, in fact, enjoy and engage in the boozy, bingy, baby-making immorality of idolatry and illicit sex. Nope, no problem. No problem, you know, because God loves you. God loves you, and God loves love. So, you know, you can do whatever you want, really. I mean, he died for your sins on the cross, and there's forgiveness, so, yeah, like, you can basically do whatever you want. He doesn't want you to feel bad, right? He gave you forgiveness. Do what you feel. Be who you like. Worked in the book of Numbers. Worked in Pergamum at Revelation. Uh, worked in Revelation at Pergamum, too. And it works today just the same. But Jesus says this in verse 16a, so change your hearts and lives. Or as some translations read, repent. In the New Testament, this repentance, this act of changing your hearts and lives is characterized by the Greek verb metanoeo, which means the complete reorientation of your whole being to God. Acknowledging your sin and turning away from everything that keeps you, from everything that keeps you, from everything that keeps you from wholehearted devotion to God, resolutely turning to God with renewed trust and obedience. And in Greco-Roman literature, this word gets translated simply as to change one's mind. But the authors of the New Testament are heavily, deeply influenced by the Old Testament use of a verb shuv, which means to physically turn. And so when you think of repentance... Think about completely turning to God. It's what Antipas did, and it emboldened him to have a faith so firm it was like ice water running through his veins. It's what Bob Taylor did, and it strengthened him to face death with a resiliency written into his DNA code. It's what you and I can do. It can push us to face all our, our challenges, all our insecurities, all the fears of the world with a durability that picks us up and dusts us off and digs us in again. But you know what? The only way to do it is to do what Jeff talked about last week. To be faithful and authentic. The only way we can approach repentance and changing our hearts and lives is to be real, authentic, and honest. It was for a, a few months, I hope it was just three, when Journey first started. We were there at the Boys and Girls Club, 
And I had the brilliant idea of wearing cowboy boots. You know, because like I grew up on a farm, home, home on the range, out yonder in the cornfields of Camarillo. You know, it really wasn't me. It really, I mean, I don't know why I decided to wear cowboy boots, probably because I was enamored with Jeff Foss, or probably because I had a very brief spell with country music, which was probably from my enamorment with Jeff Foss, but maybe just because I had been to a rodeo before and I thought it was cool. Now, if you're wearing cowboy boots today, please don't be offended. Please don't feel like this is coming to you, Will, who plays bass. But for me, it just wasn't me. But I, I saw people wearing them at the rodeo, and I thought, hey, maybe I should try and see what I look like. I would never wear them on stage because that really wasn't me, but I wore them for like three months because I saw it at a rodeo, and I thought it was cool. You know, a rodeo is, is a wild place, a wild world. Sometimes I wonder, who in the world comes up with this stuff? Like, oh, yeah, bull riding. Yeah, that will be a great idea. Let's take a, a bad-tempered 1,800-pound animal with horns and trap them in a real tight cage. And then we'll take a strap and cinch it real tight on his goodies. <laughs> Technically, it's on their flank, but it's close enough. If you're a guy, that's, that's way too close, right? You know, and then... Uh, and then Leroy, Leroy, go ahead and climb up on that bull. No, 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 not two hands, one hand, one hand only. See how long you can stay on. And then we're going to throw some clowns in there, make it real fun for the kids. <laughs> to me, it sounds more like premeditated murder. <laughs> but for some of us, that's actually what our hearts and lives look like completely out of control. Our lifestyle is bucking us, throwing us, tossing us this way and that. And we can't shuv, we can't repent, we can't turn, we can't change our hearts and lives because we're trying to turn a bucking with a Bias and Bravo bull. We can't. The gossip train is chugging along at full speed. You can't stop. The lust has become so habitual, it's rewired our brains. The pride, the anger, the jealousy, the unforgiveness is so all-consuming that it's completely consumed us. And then you've got church folks telling you, do what you feel and be who you like. But you know, in a rodeo, that bull is not going to stop bucking until you release that flank strap. The same goes for our lives. We need to release that issue. We need to be honest and authentic and real. So for the next five minutes, I want you to turn to the person next to you and just reveal to them your deepest, darkest sin. I can't even say it with a straight face. You know, that would be a great opportunity if you would sign up for our small groups. You can do that. Table for 10, men and women's group, you could do that. Uh, but, but maybe it just starts with praying to God. God, I need you to come in. I've jacked up my life. I need your help to sort things out. And by your strength and by your power, I believe that I actually can change my heart and my life. But do you realize 
God is not going to repent for you. God's not going to go and make disciples for you. God's not going to go uh, seek first the kingdom for you. God's not going to do unto others as you would have them do unto you for you. God's not going to go to that Bible study for you. God's not going to go and come up and get prayer for you. God's not going to read and study and apply your Bible for you. God's not going to love your enemies for you. God's not going to repent for you. I don't know if you saw, but our sign on the front gate and our sign on the corner and our sign on the website, it doesn't read Journey the Day Spa. I know it's hard to believe this luxurious accommodation isn't actually a rejuvenating and nurturing retreat of spa services to revitalize and bring tranquility to our first world problems. You know, you don't see saunas in room one. You don't see hot stone massages here up front. You don't see cucumbers for your eyes because we're not here to cater to you. We're here to be the church. Journey the church. And by being the church, that means each and every one of us pursuing God completely, going to him to change our hearts and lives and live for him. And it's going to take... That caught me mid-sentence. That was cool. It's going to take a combination of both God and us but it's our responsibility to be responsible for our own faith. It's not God's responsibility or my responsibility or your mom's responsibility or your spouse's responsibility or your kid's responsibility to change your own life and live out your own faith. Did anybody leave? I looked down real quick. Jesus is calling the Christians at Pergamum to change, to repent, to turn away from false teaching and this no big deal attitude about sin. And I think that he's calling us to do the same too. That we would change our hearts and lives and it's going to take our own action and responsibility with God's help. Jesus tells them in verse 16b through 17, if you don't, that is if you don't change your hearts and lives, I am coming to you soon and I will make war on them with the sword that comes from my mouth. That sure doesn't sound like do, do what you feel, be who you like. If you can hear, listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. Week one, it was go back to your first love. Week two, it was be faithful and be authentic. And here we're talking about how to change your hearts and lives. And I will give those who emerge victorious some of that hidden manna to eat. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Hidden manna a white stone, a new name. Jesus will give hidden manna, that sustaining bread from heaven that was given to the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. It sustained them each and every day. The fact that it's hidden though, it might refer to this Jewish tradition that it would reappear at the end of time. Jesus will also give a white Stone, which may have to do with the Roman custom of awarding a white stone to the victors of athletic competitions. 
They would receive a white stone with their name written on it, and it would serve as a ticket of sorts to get them entrance into a special banquet for the award winners. In similar fashion, Jesus promises the overcomers entrance to the eternal victory celebration in heaven. Jesus will give a new name. In the ancient world, names not only referred to a person, but to their character. That's why my middle name is Awesome. A new name also means new character, the new person that Jesus will make out of those who remain faithful. That church at Pergamum had everything to gain by being faithful, by changing their hearts and lives. We, church, have everything to gain by being faithful. You know, it's not going to wreck your life to be faithful. It's probably going to improve it and actually make it meaningful. Make it have a substance that it didn't have before. Give you a drive, a strength, a hope, a peace, a truth. So when you do face tough times, you can stand above the storm and withstand everything that comes your way. We, church, have everything to gain by being faithful, by changing our hearts and lives. But the question is, like, how? How do I do that? That's great. You know, there's a cool story about the bull at the beginning, you know, funny thing about the rodeo, all that stuff, cowboy boots, that would have been good to see. But, you know, how do I actually do this? Well, I think Psalm 32 is a good starting place. It's actually a prayer of repentance. And it gives us a roadmap of how we can proceed. Psalm 32, the one whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered over, is truly happy. Sounds pretty good to me. The one, the one the Lord doesn't consider guilty, the one whose spirit there is no dishonesty, that one is truly happy. Now that sounds really good to me. When I kept quiet, my bones wore out. I was groaning all day long, every day, every night. It's like I was arthritic and suffering because your hand was heavy upon me. My energy was sapped as if in a summer drought. The sin had become so entrenched, so deep within that it completely, entirely broke me. So I admitted my sin to you. I told a fib. You know, just a little white lie. <laughs> you know, I, I cared too little. I didn't pray enough. Or, you know, there was like maybe one meal over the past week that I forgot to pray for. No, 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 no. <laughs> I admitted my sin to you. I didn't conceal my guilt. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm addicted to porn. Um, I stab my friends in the back. I drink to mask my frustrations. I have unchecked pride and anger and, and, and hostility. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. I'll confess my sins to the Lord, is what I said. Then you remove the guilt of my sin, and just like that, it's gone. The weight, the burden weighing you down. It's gone. That's why all the faithful should pray to you during troubled times so that a great flood of water won't reach them. You are my secret hideout. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of rescue. And then it switches to God speaking. 
I will instruct you and teach you about the direction you should go. So our job is to listen and do. I'll advise you and keep my eye on you. Don't be like some senseless horse or mule. You know what animal that's talking about, right? Do you mute me? Don't be like some senseless horse or mule whose movement must be controlled with a bit and a bridle. Don't be anything like that. The pain of the wicked is severe, but faithful love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. You who are righteous, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you whose hearts are right, sing out in joy. Because we are his portion and he is our prize. And I'm drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. And if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. And my heart, it turns violently inside of my chest. And I don't have time to maintain all of these regrets. When I think about the way loves us. He loves us each and every moment. So how could I not change everything in my heart and in my life to be radically reoriented to loving him back? Would you pray with me? God, I know sometimes we're just so stubborn. We're like that animal, senseless horse or mule. But Lord, lead us in your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You have gone before and done amazing work for us in our lives. Lord, what can we do but to change our hearts and lives because of the amazing things that you have done, the grace you have poured out, the faithfulness of Jesus going to the cross for us. How can we, in response to this, not change our lives? How can we not build our entire selves upon you and your word and your truth and your goodness? Why are we still caught up in an old way of doing things? Forgive us, Lord. We come before you wanting to reorient ourselves radically. I pray if someone in here wants to do that for the very first time, they would pray, Jesus, come in to my life. My life is chaos. I need you to come in and help me to change. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, all the things that just tie me up. But you rose again, defeating death. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want your Holy Spirit to guide me. I really, truly want to follow I pray, Lord, that we as a church would take this as a wake-up call, that we would change our hearts and lives. It involves each and every one of us going further and deeper with you, not being afraid of what that may mean for our lives, but that we would be wholly and completely surrendered to you and your goodness, 
For you have done great things, God, amazing things, and we want to see more. And we know more is on the way for those who are faithful. Lord, we desire that hidden manna, that white stone with our name, our new name written on it. Because, Lord, you, you are good. And we love you, and the love that we can give you is just so minuscule to how much you love us. May that characterize our lives and our faith and the way we operate. In Jesus' name.